This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. The cascade of sexual misconduct cases implicating powerful men that flooded the media in 2017 set off an appropriate outcry aimed at exposing and firing the offenders and seeking ways to strengthen women's power, encouraging victims to call out their abusers, and insist on tougher sexual harassment guidelines in workplaces and socially. All appropriate measures to help resolve the conflict, but like a lot of conflict scenarios, we found the conversation lacking on what we like to call upstream solutions, which often leads us to wonder, what more could we do to keep our children, our teens, our young adults from missing out on the knowledge, understanding, and sensitivity that would keep them from becoming the adults who abuse each other, who take advantage of each other, who hurt each other? How do we make teaching moments out of what, to some, seem like awkward conversations about a sensitive subject? Well, so as not to bury the lead, I'll spill the main answer right off the bat. We have to talk. Parents and adult mentors have to talk openly with kids. And adults need to talk more with adults about sexuality and consent and respect. On today's show, though, we have two women, both licensed therapists, educators, and writers with specific ideas about how to get busy early on helping young people understand all this, helping steer boys away from misogyny, helping steer girls toward asserting their own power in relationships, helping both genders filter their exposure to pornography and other sexually explicit material, helping them go beyond the taboo mentality about conflicts around sex, helping them talk about it with each other, and helping them avoid the pitfalls and yes, helping them enjoy the experience of sexuality in healthy relationships. Although we weren't able to get both our guests together at the same time, we'll intercut some of their comments as we explore our topic today, and do note that it will involve some frank talk about sexuality. We'll be starting with Catherine Stimulus, PhD, who teaches at Hunter College in New York City and is an educational psychologist and licensed mental health counselor who specializes in women's and teen girls' issues. She says we adults have to step up and embolden our talk with our kids. Talking about bodies, talking about sex and relationships, um, not this one-time birds and the bees conversation. It has to be an ongoing culture in the home and hopefully the schools um, where it's just commonplace to ask questions, um, you know, to talk about the issues that are going on. And why that is so important is because sexual harassment, sexual assault thrive in a culture of silence, right? That's how predators um, get away with it. And that's actually, you know, oftentimes uh, what they're looking for in victims, victims that they know will be embarrassed or ashamed or don't have an adult that they can talk to about it. So when it's just such an open topic in the home, a child's much more likely to say, hey, at school today, someone said this about a body part or something that they wanted to do with me and it made me really uncomfortable. Um, and it's not going to be like, oh my God, this is such a, you know, I've never heard anything like this from you. And, you know, the parent starts crying and gets upset or freezes up because it's awkward for them be because there's already this real comfort level when, ta with, when talking about issues like this. So Catherine, I'm 61. And when I was, I don't know, maybe 13, I did get the birds and the bees conversation from my dad. 
he handed me this little thin green book that explained the basics of sex, but uh, that was about it. Right. So I'm curious why, with all of the uh, progress, I'll call it, on openness around sex, sexual revolution, some call it, why does it seem that parents still struggle or seem to rely on the one conversation approach to informing their kids about sex? Why, why, why is it so hard for them to keep a conversation going on sex? Well, I think parents look at their kids and they see these innocent little sweet children and they don't even want to think about, you know, that part of their job is to help them grow up into sexually healthy adults, right? They want to just hold on to that cuteness and that innocence and, you know, enjoy childhood and they're probably not thinking about, you know, having to talk about these issues until, like you said, you were 13. So puberty hits and then, okay, now we have to talk about it. Um, I think I think that is part of the problem. I've also seen studies where there is a concern amongst parents that if we bring up these topics, then we're going to corrupt our child. We're going to steal their innocence. Um, well, that presumes that sexuality is not a vibrant, beautiful part of a person's life like anything else would be that you'd actually want to be introducing your child to. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, the one thing I do remember about what my dad said was him saying that sex can be a beautiful thing. And I really appreciated that uh, because with all the secrecy around it and the lack of continuing conversation about it, I, I think it's still left considered a taboo subject that you know, feels mysterious and maybe dirty. So what I hear you saying is that parents need to stay committed to having that conversation in the household. Mm -hmm. I love that your dad said that to you, uh, that sex is a beautiful thing. Um, we lie to kids and we're not telling them that sex is pleasurable. We're saying, you know, be careful. You could, you know, there's all these risks attached to it. You could get pregnant. You could get an STI or you could, your feelings could really get hurt. But no one's really saying, hey, se sex feels good and that's why people do it. And why I think that's important in this context of what's going on in our culture right now is that we're teaching maybe boys that sex is pleasurable but we're not saying that to girls. So then when girls get in these situations where someone's touching them or saying things to them that are uncomfortable, you know, those bells aren't going off because they were never taught that, yeah, sex is supposed to feel good or any kind of, you know, romantic interactions are supposed to feel good. That's Dr. Catherine Stimulus, and now we welcome Jennifer Weeks. PhD, who is also a licensed therapist and founder and director of Sexual Addiction Treatment Services in Pennsylvania, an outpatient treatment program for out-of-control sexual behavior. She expands on the priority to talk more with our youngsters. We live in a world where we can see sex everywhere and we can joke about sex, but no one ever talks about it. Caregivers, parents should be speaking to their children about sex, about sexuality, about consent, what sexuality is, and in a very sort of holistic way, um, and how that is a private thing. And, and part of those conversations also then move into, you know, ways we don't interact with others sexually. What I hear you saying is that kids hear it and see it uh, long before many parents think about it's time to talk to them about it. 
Absolutely. I, I think, you know, when you look at p- pornography exposure particularly, and this is old data at this point, and, and the old data we have points to the average age of exposure to online pornography for children is about 10. I would say that, you know, since that is old data, it's probably much younger. It's probably around eight. And, you know, when you talk to parents about that, they're like, you know, no, you know, my son or daughter, you know, they don't do those things. They haven't seen those things. Well, of course they have. Um, It is unfortunately just become a piece of our culture. And with everyone's access to Internet, um, you know, the kids are seeing things way before their parents think that they're exposed to it. There's actually starting to become a lot more research about this the longer it's it's been around. Kids who view a lot of online pornography tend to objectify women more. Um, and this objectification is something that does or can lead to, um, you know, behaviors that are degrading or that are abusive because if we objectify someone, we dehumanize them and it's easier to treat them as less than. So consuming a lot of pornography Um, tends to make both boys and girls actually objectify women more, um, which can be problematic. Um, You know, the kids who are watching a lot of online pornography, um, you know, they're trying things that they see in pornography. They're assuming that that's normal sexual behavior. Um, And again, this can be a realm where we need to talk to kids about that because, um, you know, pornography today is not like pornography 20 years ago. It's a lot more violent and a lot more degrading to women kind of by design, how they produce it these days. So there's a lot that kids need to know about pornography. And one of the biggest things I think they need to know about online pornography that we have to talk to them about is that real sex between two partners does not look like what pornography looks like. So it can give kids an altered sense of sexuality, performance issues, self-esteem issues. There's just a lot that gets wrapped up into consuming a lot of um, highly stylized degrading to women pornography that's out there today. People always misunderstand this when I ask a question this way, but I'll just be honest. You know, when I was growing up and nobody to talk to about sex, you know, in my era of the 1960s and 70s, you know, men's magazines was where I had to learn anything about sex. Mm -hmm. I like to think that over time I got the understanding about what was the uh, helpful end of that or what was the harmful end of that and the difference between, you know, domination and all that stuff. Absolutely. I'm just wondering, if is that part of the conversation as well? Absolutely. I mean, and I think that is a big piece of why a lot of kids initially look for online pornography, right? They have hormones, they're raging, they're curious, and all of that is totally biologically normal. It's just what they're exposed to. Um, you know, their brain is not ready for what they're exposed to. So I do think that has to be part of the conversation. So, you know, if you have a child who you find out is looking at online pornography, part of that conversation is why. You know, are they lear- Are they looking for information, right? Do they want to learn? Do they want to come to understand things? And if they are, that's a great way to give them accurate information because what they're getting is, is not really accurate as to what sort of real-life sex looks like. Catherine, I'm guessing that six, seven, or eight-year-olds might be old enough to be paying attention to the news on television or radio and would be full of questions about sexual harassment and unwanted advances. How would you talk to kids about those questions when they come up? I'll get to the gender breakdown, but actually I don't even know if we have to be having different conversations with boys and girls at that age right now. Um, I think it's important or I think helpful to talk to kids that at that young age 
uh, about sexual harassment in terms that they can understand. And a term that they can understand is bullying, right? That's something they're learning about in schools. That's something parents tend to be talking about. Um, and sexual harassment is a form of bullying. So we can tell them that this is a form of bullying. It's something that adults are, are doing too. They're, adults can bully other adults. And specifically, this is bullying to make someone feel embarrassed, humiliated, or uncomfortable. And oftentimes it's comments about body parts. Um, and that's something that can make it um, embarrassing and sometimes hard to talk about. But as a parent, I want you to know that you should never feel embarrassed if you know someone touches you or bullies you in that way because it's not your fault at all. Like this is, the bully is the one that should feel embarrassed or that they're the naughty one. They're the ones doing something wrong. And I think at that age, six, seven-year-olds will probably be okay with that at that level. And I don't know that they need to know much more than that unless they're asking follow-up questions. It seems to me that uh, the conversation with young boys would at some point, and maybe not at that age, but at some point would have to steer a little bit more to a specific conversation about uh, the use of sex uh, as a bullying tool. Why I initially said uh, we might not have to break down gender is a recent study came out saying that there's not actually a big gap in terms of boys and girls who are sexually harassing at school. Um, 42% of perpetrators are actually girls, so that's somewhat shocking. But still, the majority are boys. We have to just tell boys that this is not okay. As my son, this is not okay for you to do this. This makes people uncomfortable, humiliated. And a recent study from um, the Harvard School of Education actually asked teenagers why they sexually harass other people. Um, majority said because they thought it was funny, right? And about four, I think 44% said that they didn't think it was a big deal. So we have to tell boys, yes, this is a big deal. It's not funny. And this is how the victim can feel humiliated. They feel embarrassed. Um, they have difficulty sleeping when they're victims of, of sexual harassment. Um, a, lot of, a lot of them start cutting school because of it. You know, with boys, we have to teach empathy and try to get them to see the victim's perspective. You know, again, go back to the conversation of what is healthy sexuality and sexual expression? It should be reciprocal, right? Um, it should make you feel good and it should make the other person feel good. If you have the sense that you're not making another person feel good, then that's bad behavior, and you need to stop that. You said something a moment ago that begs the question uh, that surveys show that 42% of young girls are engaged in inappropriate sexual bullying. Mm -hmm. And how does that look? It does cross the gender line. I think there is a lot of girl-on-girl -girl bullying that has the sexual nature to it, um, especially surrounding the word slut um, and all of it's colorful in many synonyms, 
girls calling each other sluts or writing derogatory things in their social media, spreading sexual rumors. Those are all things that researchers classify as sexual harassment. But boys are victims too. Um, And boys are victims from girls. Not to get too on the nose here, but does that mean like making jokes about penis size? Yeah, I know. I actually was like thinking to say that. Or or, or spreading rumors uh, or challenging uh, boys to be more... Uh, sexually out there? Yeah, absolutely. That's it. Those are exact examples. A lot of the um, bullying directed towards boys is about being gay or being perceived to be gay. Um, so calling their masculinity into question is a really uh, common form of bullying that happens with teenagers. But we're not calling it what it is, which is sexual harassment or, you know, saying it's bullying. Um, And for girls who are getting called slut, which is the typical form of bullying for a girl, high school girl, we're not labeling it sexual harassment either. This is sexual harassment. Um, This is trying to degrade kids in a sexual manner to make them feel ashamed, um, to make them humiliated. Um, And that's that's the purpose of it. That's Catherine Stamelis from Hunter College in New York City. We're also hearing from Jennifer Weeks of Pennsylvania's Sexual Addiction Treatment Services. And we'll be hearing more from both when we continue our conversation about how to talk to youngsters about sexual harassment and unwanted sexual behavior when Peace Talks Radio continues after this break. It's Peace Talks Radio, and we're online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls. Today, we're looking into a way to set a conversational framework early on in the lives of children. So when our young people are adults, there may be less of the kind of sexual abuse, intimidation, insensitive advances, cases of misconduct that became public in a big way in 2017. And sexual harassment has been more a part of the national conversation ever since. One of the main of many long-standing inequities that emerges quickly as young people reach puberty is that it's considered cool for boys and men to have sex, to have multiple partners even. But if girls or women explore their sexuality, they're called derogatory names and are made to feel ashamed and embarrassed. Dr. Jennifer Weeks says that paradigm is being set up at an alarmingly early age, and a special problem develops when the kids are given their first smartphones, which opens up the channels for sexting, sending explicit messages and photos back and forth to classmates. You know, there's a lot of research that shows that girls receive an enormous amount of pressure to send nude images of themselves to mostly boys. Um, and, And they face a conundrum because if they do it, 
you know, they are then labeled, you know, their sluts or their, you know, some other disparaging sexualized name. And if they don't, then they're prudes. So girls are sort of in this lose-lose situation. And the boys, what the research shows us, really, you know, if get that sort of, you know, player or, you know, that status, you know, I can get a girl to send me a nude. So, you know, from that those moments, um, you know, there is already a very clear um, divide between, um, you know, how culture views sexualized girls versus sexualized boys. So if your daughter comes home, says, Tommy's trying to get me to send him, you know, a nude picture, I'm so upset, how does that conversation sound that puts it in context and helps with your daughter's self-esteem? Sure. I can actually, it's, it's a little variation on that, but can give you a, an actual conversation. Um, it was actually a friend of mine's daughter in um, fifth grade, so that's what, 11, um, sure. had come home from her first day of school on the school bus and, you know, had a friend, uh, had observed her friend take a picture of her breasts and send it to the boys at the back of the bus. Um, you know, and my friend has a beautiful relationship with her children, so her daughter came home and was like, Mom, what do I do? This happened. Um you know, and, and it prompted a lot of discussions. First was the discussion about, you know, what our bodies are. You know, our bodies are our, our, our own. Um, it should be our choice who we share them with. Um, and that should be free of coercion. And I can get into the different types of consent later. And so it, that's a discussion about it's your body. Um, you know, it's your choice as to what you do that with. Another piece of, of that discussion is what happens to that image in, in this sexting type of situation once you send it, you know, in, in terms of, you know, you send that picture, you lose control. You know, maybe Tommy is your boyfriend today, but what if Tommy's not your boyfriend tomorrow? And then Tommy can send your picture somewhere else. So that's another, you know, piece of this information. What the interesting twist was, it was also the social piece. Well, what happens for my, my friend's daughter if, you know, if she tells on her friend what happens to her social status in school, because now she's a snitch? Um, you know, if she says something to the boy, what happens to her social status there? So there's, it's more than just about, you know, your child and your child's sexuality and their body and consent. We also have to take into account what what goes on socially in a school because again bullying is an enormous problem and if a child is in a situation where other children will bully them then that has long-term you know mental health ramifications down the road so it's it's very difficult to navigate right well I guess early on though you have to sort of present the uh, reality of uh, saying you can tell the truth and still be bullied absolutely or sort of giving up our own moral values in order for uh, to achieve, um, you know, status or, or a role in society. So it's it's really also you know what what that conversation is is about integrity as well as what's our personal integrity. Do we do what we believe in because it's our truth and it's our integrity, or do we kind of cave into the peer pressure of of what you know that little society in school in her case was was pushing for? Catherine Stimulus, um, what are your theories about how adult men who behave most egregiously come to these places where they are serial offenders, forcing themselves on victims as adults, exposing themselves, asserting their power with sexual demands? This may repeat some of what we've said, but what possibly do these characters lack in a sexual upbringing? Where do they lose the concept of consent, for example, and an understanding of these basics 
that you are trying to instill in youngsters uh, with your work? You know, it's a huge question, and it's one that researchers are really looking at. There are certain personality traits that are common in men that have positions of power. There has to be some sense of narcissism to achieve certain levels of success. And with heightened levels of narcissism, we find heightened levels of entitlement. So I think in some of these cases, men feel entitled. They feel entitled to do what whatever they want. Almost like the rules of consent don't apply to them because they are so special, they are so powerful. Let me slow this down a little bit then. So you mentioned uh, narcissism and entitlement tendencies. So if you're a parent who has a 13-year-old in the house, where would you go to tilt your youngster away from those ways of being? Boys are taught from pretty much birth that their stories are more important, and this is done in a very subtle way. But if we even look at children's books, there's one female character for every four boy characters in children's books. Right? If you um, throw on TV shows, you'll see something very, you know, very similar. A lot of the shows, the main characters are about boy characters. There was a study that looked at nursery school stories about animals and found that the teachers were attributing maleness to these animals in these stories something like five or six times as often, right? So boys are getting the message in a subtle way um, while they're young that boys are more important than girls. Their stories are more important. And then they look to positions of power and authority and they see their faces, You know, you're more likely to see men as the principals of school and at schools. You'll see females as the teachers, but, you know, the administration, the authority figures are more likely to be male. We can see that, you know, see this. There's so many examples of this. You know, you ask to speak to the manager and it's a man. Oh, who's the president? You know, it's always been a man. Or superheroes or soldiers for that matter. Yes, yes, exactly. Even news stories are more likely to report on men, even humanist interest stories, etc. I think how parents can combat that is they can be cognizant of the media and the books that their children are consuming to try to make it more balanced. But also, you know, as they get older, call out bad behavior. And your kid is going to have bad behavior, boys and girls. When you see that, you have to have a discussion. I mean, don't jump down their throat, but, you know, talk to them about that this isn't the right thing to do. And think about how the other person might feel. And you may be popular and your friends are laughing at it, but think about that girl, how she's feeling right now. Or think about that boy that doesn't have his friends with him. And, you know, you guys just made fun of him. How do you think he feels? And that's called empathy building. And that can be a really protective factor against some of this more dangerous narcissism in adulthood. So building that empathy is really crucial. Dr. Weeks, how about the balance of trying to communicate the joy and beauty and pleasure of sex versus this scary, dangerous, thing spinning out of control result that can happen once youngsters start to explore their sexuality? 
you can't see, but I'm smiling on the other end here because we talk about this a lot in um, addiction recovery as well because it's a lot of no and not a lot of yes, um, which does skew things because healthy sexuality is a beautiful thing, right? A, a healthy sexual relationship is an expression of self. It's an expression of, you know, relationship. It's a, a beautiful thing. So I think, you know, what we need to do is, you know, temper or equalize discussions of the reality of sexuality, which is kind of scary at some level in terms of internet pornography and revenge pornography and all of these other things with teachings of what healthy sexuality is. Um, you know, and that's not something I think that kids get in school and, you know, in sexual education, um, if they even have sexual education in school. Um, and it's not something that parents really talk about, you know, a lot as well. And, you know, those aspects of healthy sexuality, you know, sensuality, equality of power, right in teaching of healthy sexuality is, you know, that equality of power is about consent um, you know, and all of those things. So in teaching healthy sexuality, I think we can express, you know, that sex can be a beautiful, fun thing, but we also have to be mindful of what we're doing. Right, and you mentioned earlier that you wanted to touch on certain levels or definitions of consent. Could you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. Um, this is one of the things that comes from my work with offenders. And, you know, we think of consent, and it used to be um, no means no. And now, you know, people are, you know, you hear people saying yes means yes. What we do when we're teaching, um, you know, it used to just be in the offender population, but now it's when we're teaching any kind of healthy sexuality is that we'll talk about compliance, coercion, and consent. Um, you know, I think everyone knows what completely non-consensual sexual, sexual contact is, right? Indecent assault, rape, things like that. Um, compliance and coercion are a little more sticky. Um, coercion, for example, is when someone is sexual with another person, not because they necessarily want to, but because they're, they're coerced into it. So, um, you know, if you loved me, you would do this kinds of things. Or, well, you know, all the other girls are doing it. And if you loved me, you know, and you are coerced into a behavior that you don't actually want to engage in. Yeah. And or if you want to keep your job. Right. And that's um, a little more of what we would call compliance. Right. And that I'm engaging in something not because I want to, but because if I don't, there are consequences. And so do I want to keep my job? Do I you know, when you think of all of this stuff going on in the media, do I ever want to work in movies, television, radio, politics, whatever it may be again? Um, I do this not because I want to, but because there are serious consequences to me, um, you know, if I don't. And a lot of people will say, well, you know, just get another job. We all know that life is not that simple and it's a lot more complicated. So, um, you know, in a, a marriage, you know, you can have these things happen in a marriage or in a committed relationship where maybe one partner is engaging with another um, in a behavior they don't really want to because they're afraid of losing their partner or they're afraid of if I don't do this behavior, my husband will cheat on me. Um, so again, it looks perhaps like they are engaging in this behavior because they want to, but it's really not. It's this, this sort of unspoken threat over their heads. Sometimes the threat is actually verbalized. You did cover all three sides of those, of the consent well, and consent is just yes, right? Um, you know, and I think consent gets a lot easier 
when we're more open about sexuality and we understand our own sexuality more and we talk about it. Um, so that's can I, you know, can we, do you want to um, types of behaviors. And so, you know, the compliance and coercion are not truly consent. Um, but I think a lot of people confuse that or they think yeah. that they are. Well, uh, when your 15-year-old daughter comes home and you guys have a good open relationship and you say, you know, my boyfriend wants to, how do I know that I should say yes or no? <laughs> What's the litmus test? <laughs> um, I mean, I think the litmus test is, is just to, you know, sort of have a conversation with her about it if you can. Um, you know, if she's willing and that, you know, how does she feel about it? Does she really want to do it? Is she? Is there any fear if she doesn't do whatever behavior the boyfriend wants her to do? Um, you know, and the, if there's fear there, that you know, there's obviously an issue. You know, there shouldn't be fear in sex. Um, you know, if if people are into, um, you know, things things in the kink community that maybe have fear, that's very consensual, and that's a whole you know whole different piece. But you know, if your 15 year old daughter's coming home and saying, you know, my boyfriend Johnny wants to do X potentially because he saw X happen in pornography. Um, well, how does she feel about it? Does she want to do it? Um, and if she doesn't, you know, how does she express that? And what is she worried about or what is she afraid of if she says no? Right, and we've had this conversation without really speaking about the mandatory uh, discussion about pregnancy and avoiding pregnancy mm -hmm. as being an important part of the conversation beyond the do you want to do you not want to absolutely and I think part of of safety and security is also you know disease transmission um, and part of healthy sexuality you know as we teach it is very much taking care of one's own health right physical health emotional health um, so a lot of that is you know around the physical health piece how do I, you know if you are going to be um, sexual, if you're going to choose consensually to be sexual, how do you do that safely so that you do not, um, you know, end up with a disease or you do not end up with, um, you know, consequences that you, you know, didn't ask for? Uh, Catherine Stemless, um, I'm a big media literacy proponent, and I find that the confusing messages around sexuality in our media are pretty overwhelming. Your open conversations between parents and kids and, you know, pointing out things in books and things on television, I mean, that could be a nonstop conversation as overwhelming as the sexual messaging is and the idea that sex conversation is an opportunity for humor. It's pervasive. I don't want to sound prudish about it, but I'm proposing that it has to be a rich vein of conversation between parents and kids about what it means to try to just be funny around sex. Mm -hmm. And I, I think kids can be funny around sex. Um, but I think what we want to tell them is that if there's a victim of your comedy, then it's not funny. That crosses a line. Once it becomes hurtful, it's not funny anymore. And one thing that we can do, and I, I do see a cultural shift right now happening, which I'm really excited about, is that people are starting to call that out. Um, you know, whether it's sexism, racism, oh, it was just a joke. Well, no, it's not funny. And you're perpetuating these stereotypes and these, you know, damaging uh, thought patterns, et cetera. What I think we need to do with kids, too, 
is instill them with the confidence to be able to call out bad behavior um, from their peers. And I think that's really how we're going to come across uh, to have a level of cultural change. Because look what's going on with these public firings. You know, companies or businesses, movie studios are firing people that are being accused of sexual harassment because they don't want the blowback on them, right? They don't want to lose money. They don't want the bad publicity. So I don't know that they're doing it out of the goodness of their heart that this is the right thing. Um, but nevertheless, it's, it's a positive thing. And I think if kids can start calling out their friends and saying like, hey, that was racist, that was sexist, that was derogatory, that's going to be hugely powerful um, in reducing it. And there's actually been some studies looking at this. Um, there was a campaign in Canada called Don't Be That Guy. And it was um, the the mission was to reduce the rate of sexual assault. But what they did was they plastered around bars and campus with with posters saying, like, you know, if your friends pressuring someone or trying to take home a woman who's really intoxicated, like, say, you know, speak up to your friend and say, hey, man, that's not cool. You know, don't be that guy. And they found that that successfully reduced uh, the rate of sexual assault in that community. Um, so there is promising research that shows that if we can get friends and peers on board and saying, like, this isn't okay, then it could really have a, po- a positive impact. And I'm guessing that there's a moment at a certain age when it's very typical for teenagers just at the point where they may be becoming sexually active, in fact, that they tend to shut down from their parents. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to talk about anything, really. And so are there best practices for how to keep an open line of communication on all topics going? Mm -hmm. Is the key starting early and establishing a pattern that can somehow overcome that individualistic withdrawal that is so common in those teen years? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, most teenagers don't want to talk to their parents about sex. Um, Most adults don't want to talk to their parents about sex, and that's totally understandable. But if it has been just part of the family system, they're going to be more comfortable. However, I think it's important for parents to keep talking, even if they feel like their kids don't want to listen. Um, And like you said, that's exactly part of the teen years. It's very normal talking to them, even if they don't respond, doesn't mean they're not hearing you. Um, And you don't have to be so direct, like, have you done this? Or, you know, has this ever happened to you? But you talk about things that you see on TV, you bring those up as talking points. Um, You can say, has that ever happened to anyone at your school, you think? Really? Like, how did that go down? How do you feel about that? You can find little ways throughout the day to bring it up that's not confrontational. Um, you can do good modeling. And what I mean by that is if there's someone that you're with or you see on TV and someone's calling a woman a slut or a derogatory term, say, hey, that's not cool. We don't say that in our house and this is why. Um, this is degrading. Um, This is putting down a woman's sexuality. And yeah, your teenager is probably going to sit there totally silent, but that's okay. They're probably listening. And, you know, if you do it so many times, it's going to sink in and they're going to they're going to get the message that, you know, my parents 
don't like this. This isn't how, how they're raising me. We still have to keep talking to teenagers, even if they're not talking back to us. What's your best pep talk to adults who might say, yeah, I guess I'm hearing that. I know it's true, but gosh, it's just hard for me to sit down and have that talk, or I don't know how to do it. Where do parents go to get that little push that will make them active on this topic? I mean, if you're really struggling, talk, you know, talk to a professional, talk to a therapist who could give you some pointers. Um, but I think overall, just, you know, take the leap, do the, uncom- you know, the first uncomfortable conversation. But again, use media, use TV shows as jumping off points that can make things more comfortable, you know, things that come up naturally and use them at, as a starting point. Um, and over time, the more often you do it, the more comfortable you'll be. Again, even as you said before, even if your kid is sitting there at the at the table, like just looking down at their food at dinner, you know, keep you know keep doing it. You're doing really important work when you're doing that, and you're really really helping your child. That's Catherine Stamelis from Hunter College in New York City. We'll hear more from her and from sexual addiction therapist Dr. Jennifer Weeks on how to talk more and better with our kids about sexuality, about sexual harassment. When Peace Talks Radio continues in a moment. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Today we're talking with therapists, educators, and authors Catherine Stamelis from Hunter College in New York City, and also Jennifer Weeks, director of the Sexual Addiction Treatment Services in Pennsylvania, about talking to our young people about sexual misconduct. 2017 Harvard study learned that 76% of survey respondents, 72% of men, and 80% of women reported that they never had a conversation with parents about how to avoid sexually harassing others. Similar majorities had never had conversations with their parents about various forms of misogyny. Dr. Jennifer Weeks posted an article online that said essentially the main reason parents don't talk more with their kids about sex is that many parents don't know enough about sex to give their kids any useful guidance. If you've had a child, you know something about the actual biological mechanics of making a child, but it doesn't necessarily mean you know anything about teaching sexuality or healthy sexuality. Um, you know, so there's, I think there's a big difference. It doesn't guarantee either that they even have experienced the whole rainbow of experiences that uh, are available in sexuality. Absolutely. And, and, you know, when we talk to parents, we always, I, in my very non-clinical way, we'll say, you know, what's your stuff? 
I want to know how they learned about sex and sexuality because that's going to inform what they share with their children. If they never learned from a parent or a caregiver or they got, you know, minimal sex ed in school, you know, what information do they truly have to pass on to their child? If the parent, um, you know, has a sexual abuse history, right? Obviously, there's going to be a lot of baggage that they hold around sex and sexuality, um, justifiably so, that, that might influence how they do or do not talk to their child about sex and sexuality. So, you know, and, and there's multiple other sort of pieces that could go into why a parent is so uncomfortable talking about sex. Maybe it's shame, you know, maybe their religious upbringing, um, you know, caused shame for them around sex or sexuality. There's just a million different reasons that can make them uncomfortable in talking about sex and, and sexuality to their children. And again, if they don't know what healthy sexuality is, you can't teach what you don't know. Well, I think I know the answer to this question, but I'll have you take a crack at articulating it. I mean, in your blog post, you say you need to go out and learn. How does a parent really do that completely if they're serious about it, if they really want to do it right and well? Um, I, I mean, I think there's a, a number of um, a number of ways to do that. I think there's some great books um, out in the world, both about just human sexuality again um, and how to talk to children. So off the top of my head, um, there's a book called The New Naked, and I do not remember the authors, that talks about, you know, human sexuality for adults, um, sort of like a sex ed book for adults. Um, there is an organization called Educate and Empower Kids, that prints an amazing series of books about how to talk to your child about um, issues about sex and sexuality that starts very young. And it's just these little kind of conversation primers about, you know, how to start a conversation with your five-year-old about boundaries, right? We're not even talking about sex, but about boundaries because these are, these are things that prime um, those conversations later. So it's, you know, it's books, it's blog posts, it's, um, you know, reputable websites, um, just really gathering information. How about before your kid is verbal at the two or three years old that you invest a year at least in your own therapy if you haven't been there yet? <laughs> well, I would think that would be wonderful, but I, my profession makes me probably a little biased. Um, I think you don't get um, through humanity without having baggage. So it would probably all be best for all of us to kind of work through some of that and, um, you know, try to present the best person that we are to the universe and to our children. Well, and I don't think most people realize that most uh, decent health care plans uh, allow for behavioral health for free or for very low co-payments. Absolutely. And I think there's also um, still a stigma for a lot of people about, um, you know, going to therapy. There's uh, still a stigma about mental health issues. And, um, you know, I think some people will think, well, you know, I don't, I'm not depressed. I'm not, you know, bipolar. I don't need to go to therapy when basically what therapy is, is just a place to kind of talk through your stuff with someone who can be objective. So even if there's not a major mental health issue, um, you know, it's a great place to go through and, you know, talk to tell somebody about your fears about maybe, you know, impending parenthood or, you know, anything like that. Um, you know, there's people who specialize in all types of things around child rearing and, or, you know, whatever is in the parent's past that they might want to work through. So I'm always a fan of everyone getting therapy at some point. Again, we've sort of set up a paradigm here where it's presumed that the parents are the best and if not only, but certainly the most appropriate caregivers to um, 
pass along and be involved with young people in the conversation about sex. What if you're on the outside of that circle? What if you're a relative? What if you're a teacher? What if you're a mentor? What are the boundaries for being a part of this conversation with young people that isn't going to get you in trouble for being inappropriate? Um, I think this is probably where the modeling comes in as well in terms of, you know, modeling respectful behavior to everyone, um, modeling uh, behavior that doesn't objectify men or women or doesn't degrade men or women, uh, modeling behavior that doesn't abuse power. Um, But I also think that, you know, you can talk to, if you're a a family member or a mentor, you know, a um, youth leader at a a church or something like that, you can talk to kids about... um, you know, media, messages from media. You can talk to, um, you know, children about messages about men and women in terms of equality and how they're treated, you know, and not necessarily move into the realm of sex and sexuality, which obviously people are sometimes reticent to talk about given, you know, the the climate where, you know, we don't want anybody to be accused of doing anything inappropriate and we don't want anyone doing anything inappropriate. So there's sort of safe realms where you can still talk about these things without moving into sex and sexuality specifically. Mm-hmm. Could there be a scenario where a parent says, you know, I'm just not good at this and uh, you probably are better than that or, um, you know, my son has a better association or is easier talking to you. Uh, if those situations come up, do you kind of, uh, if you're the outsider, so to speak, do you look for uh, being anointed or formally assigned the role so that, you know, if anybody's looking for a path to uh, understanding whether there's permission to talk about those things that you've sought it out and kind of um, secured it? I I think so. And the word consent just popped into my head as you're talking that, you know, maybe it's not just about, you know, sex and sexuality, but you have the consent of the parents to talk to their child about these things, you know, and that's a verbal, hey, you know, Uncle Bob, you know, you're a a health educator. Could you talk to, you know, to Charlie about these things because you have the knowledge? Uh, Jennifer Weeks is our guest, and uh, we're talking about uh, raising kids toward healthy Uh, relationships, and especially around sexuality. Before we leave talking about uh, these issues to our boys, can I drill down a little bit further into how these conversations might sound with uh, boys? And like, what are the circumstances, like when you mentioned before, like when you're watching things on TV or you're talking about things that are happening at school, could you use a a few case studies, uh, descriptions, for example, about what those conversations might sound like so that our listeners can get a real good idea of, you know, uh, something to pattern these conversations after? Um, Okay, let me kind of pull something out of my brain here. I am um, a big fan of using news articles or things like that as uh, talking points and teaching points with children. Um, You know, they're aware of news. Maybe they're not watching CNN or something like that, but they're aware of things that are going on, um, you know, and to use something like that maybe as a talking point. Um, or, you know, if, if there's things that are going on, you know, in the child's school or in the neighborhood, to, to use that as a talking point in terms of, you know, 
this is what's going on in the world. What do you think about it? Um, you know, I tend to not advocate the lecture style to children because, you know, if I think to my own youth, as soon as someone started lecturing me, I tuned them out, um, but really encourage, a, you know, more of a conversational style with them that, you know, have you heard about, you know, X that's going on? So, you know, there's been a lot of talk in the newspapers about people who are, you know, treating other people badly or who are being abused or being accused of, of being abused. Have you heard about that? And, you know, what do they think about that? Have they, you know, do they have thoughts about how other people should be treated? Um, and I think one of the things that parents do, and I think part of it's out of their own discomfort, is they'll sort of try this big one-and-done kind of conversation. And these things really need to be tiny little chunks of conversations over and over and over so that it just kind of becomes part of the language and that we talk about um, you know, injustice in the world, and we talk about um, sexuality and sex in a non-shaming, non-scary way, so that it's just something that we talk about, and it's okay to talk about and have an opinion. Right. Well, in these kind of um, conversations like what we're having, we and we've probably used that phrase so many times, talk to your child, talk, talk, mm-hmm. talk, talk to your child. But I hear you just say, uh, bends the emphasis a little bit more on to the listen to your child, uh, put them in a position where they're doing some talking so that they're, uh, so that you're listening and being able to parse out exactly what you need to say that will help them most. Absolutely. Or, or what they're thinking or what they're, you know, what they're feeling about it. Um, you know, even if they're young, they're going to have, you know, they have thoughts and, you know, they have feelings about things. And, and in my mind, um, you know, it's very shrinky, but it not only, you know, facilitates communication between the parent and the child, but it helps them learn to identify their feelings and identify their opinions about things and, you know, talk about them in a, in a healthy, non-judgmental way. And, you know, that's the other piece of it is that, you know, a parent has to practice listening without judgment. Um, you know, if you've got somebody who's got a child who's, you know, playing Grand Theft Auto, who's talking about all of the really violent things going on in that video game and, you know, the prost- you know, picking up prostitutes in a video game, if you have a parent who freaks out about that, you've, they're going to shut their kid down. So it's also practice on the parent's part in terms of being like, oh, okay, what happens in that video game? Tell me more about that. When, you know, maybe inside they want to be like, what? You know, and, and kind of freak out a little bit. Time for a last word from Dr. Catherine Stimulus, therapist and teacher at Hunter College in New York City. So I'd like to reiterate that it is so important that we break this silence surrounding adolescent sexuality because that's how all of this thrives. Victims won't come forward because they're embarrassed and they're ashamed and they learn that these topics are taboo. And also, the bullies or the perpetrators aren't going to come to their parents or teachers with questions about their behavior either because these topics are taboo. So the biggest gift that we can give to our kids is to talk freely about sex and create an environment where they can come to us and ask questions. We're not talking about boundaries and consent and uh, with kids. Um, and parents likely are not often telling their kids about how not to sexually harass somebody. 
Um, and that same study from the Harvard School of Education found that less than a quarter of teenagers and young adults have ever had a conversation with their parents about how to avoid sexually harassing someone. Now, maybe parents are thinking, hey, that should be obvious. But it's not obvious. I mean, think about all the confusion that's going on now amongst adults. Like, what exactly is sexual harassment? And, you know, how does it differentiate between flirting? And, you know, all of these questions um, that adults have about it. No, the parents are not talking to their kids about how not to do it. So we might be doing a better job talking to girls about, okay, if anyone hurts you or makes you feel uncomfortable or with young kids, if they touch you in your private parts, you know, you know, come talk to me. But we're not saying, hey, don't touch other kids in their private parts, you know, you know, to six and seven year olds. Um, or, you know, don't push when someone tells you no, or don't keep texting someone if you don't get a response, um, because likely that's unwanted. Um, so we definitely should be talking to our kids about how, how not to be perpetrators, because the perpetrators in high schools are teenagers, so there are children, um, and it doesn't make them terrible kids or anything like that. Um, but we need to, you know, we need to be talking to them about it, how not to do this. And then further, that this is just not acceptable in our home. If you enjoyed what you heard here from Dr. Stamelis from Hunter College in New York City and Dr. Weeks and want a deeper dive into their take on teaching sexuality to our youngsters, you can hear the entire interviews we had with each online at peacetalksradio.com. Look for the January episode from 2018. To close it, I want to play a portion of a poem presented by the pop singer known as Halsey at a women's march in January of 2018 that outlined her multiple upsetting encounters with sexual misconduct by men and ended this way. It's 2018 and I've realized that nobody is safe long as she is alive and every friend that I know has a story like mine and the world tells me we should take it as a compliment. But then heroes like Ashley and Simone and Gabby, Michaela and Gaga, Rosario, Ali, remind me this is the beginning, it is not the finale, and that's why we're here, and that's why we rally. It's about closed doors and secrets and legs and stilettos from the Hollywood Hills to the projects and ghettos when babies are ripped from the arms of teen mothers and child brides cry globally under the covers who don't have a voice on the magazine covers. They tell us, take cover. But we are not free until all of us are free. So love your neighbor. Please treat her kindly. Ask her her story and then shut up and listen. Black, Asian, poor, wealthy, trans, cis, Muslim, Christian, listen, listen, and then yell at the top of your lungs. Be a voice for all those who have prisoner tongues, for the people who had to grow up way too young. There is work to be done. There are songs to be sung. Lord knows there's a war to be won. Thank you. A link to the whole Halsey poem, other links to resources about talking to young people about sex and sexual harassment and abuse can be found at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Transcripts, photos, audio from this show, and all the other shows in our series stretching back to 2002, also at peacetalksradio.com. Also there, a link to support our nonprofit organization, Good Radio Shows Incorporated, that produces Peace Talks Radio for national distribution. 
Other support comes from KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Nola Daves-Moses is Executive Director of Good Radio Shows Incorporated. Ali Adelman composed and performed our theme. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Thank you.